Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to, to, to be on tonight. And as I get ready to do our Wednesday night Bible study, we're still in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we got into chapter 13 last week. We're going to finish up 13 tonight and get into a little bit of chapter 14. Uh, I tell you, this is so much different and, than our normal Wednesday nights as as I do this, I do miss being in front of the people and the, the church and just being able to talk and fellowship. And, you know, during this trying time that we're in and it's so many different things are happening, I, I urge you to be sure you're doing as the Bible says, humble ourselves and pray, remember each other, lift each other up in prayer, uh, special prayers tonight for 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 the people who were on the front line of this, those who are essential employees that are working during this time, and I know fear is easy to happen. You know, as you hear, oh, this people's got this and this people's got that, and there seems to be illness all around. So I ask you to pray for them, especially who are having to work, and and especially those doctors and nurses and just anybody who's working this time. I understand that. You know, being in the position I am at my job, uh, working still, so I, I ask for your prayers, but remember them. Tonight, let's pray, and as we remember the nation, remember our leaders, that God will help lead and guide them. The the sick of our church, I'll ask you to please pray for them. Uh, people like Coral Ann, who, who's pregnant and had uh, had a big scare just here recently with uh, going into labor, not quite ready for the baby yet, so I ask you to remember Coral Ann and Shanna and Jason and their family during this time and all the different ones we've heard from this week. We lift each other up. Lord, ask you to remember the McCullough's, pray for them and, and so many others in our church who are going through so much physically at this time, which is a scary time to be sick. And remember just the church in general. Let's pray that God watches over us and keeps us strong and keeps us close together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll get started tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this wonderful night. Lord, as we come and just the blessings of being in your word, Father, I pray you help open our eyes and our hearts to your word that we might learn more about you. Lord, as we study the book of Isaiah, we see the truths that are all in it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it's amazing as Isaiah penned this so many years ago, how relevant it is to our time and to the situations that we're going through as, as a world and a church and different things. Lord, thank you for a glimpse at the past and a glimpse at the future. Bless us, Lord, as we study this word and get into it. In the Lord's name I pray. Amen. Last week we left off in chapter 13 and we got to the, the desolation basically part of Babylon. And it goes from verse 17 of chapter 13 through verse 22. And it's talking about how Babylon is going to be laid to waste. Now you got to remember this is way before Babylon even basically attacks Judah and takes them into captivity. So it's it, it, it's awesome how God have prophesied this as, as things were going on. Verse 17 starts off, says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces. They shall have no pity of the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare the children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as God, as be when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and it shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabians pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls, and shall not dwell there, and the satire shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, excuse me, and her time is near, and to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. You know, one of the things, I don't know if you notice, we'll get into it as we get to the towards the last verses. Uh, you got a mention of a, a creature, which we'll talk about, which might kind of get your interest up a little bit. But let's go back to verse 17. He says, I will stir up the Medes. You know, this is a prophecy that was made decades before Babylon Empire defeated the Syrian Empire. So, you know, it, it's funny because the Medes were not even there and they, you know, became a superpower. And it was even more before the time when the Medes came up against the Babylonians and conquered them as, you know, God used it basically the Medes as an instrument of judgment against the Babylonians. Verse 18, though, it shows us the brutality of the conquest. You know, pregnant women were killed uh, having their unborn children ripped from the wombs. That shows you just how violent this was going to be. When God punishes them, it's a horrible, violent time. You know, it's specifically worded passages like this that drive skeptics of the Bible crazy. You know, pushing them to regard uh, the Isaiah's written after the events were prophesied, but God doesn't, you know, basically trying to say God doesn't know the future or how specific it is, but this shows you here that God knows and how he, he, he gave them specifics about it and, and how brutal it would be. And they're like, you know, yo, they, they just read history, went back and wrote this, but Isaiah wrote this before it ever happened because that's how awesome of a God that we really serve. You know, and it, it, he gives you a comparison to how bad it's going to be. He says, when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah suggests it's not just a, a, a com, only a complete destruction because of what they did, but it's a, there's a moral cause to it. When God destroyed the, the Babylonians there, he, there was a moral cause as why he does it. And you think Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, when we think Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about all the sins that they had and how God just looked upon them and said he had had enough and he rained down fire and brimstone and utterly destroyed it. So he, it's a reminder there of that. You know, he gets into the, it goes in and in verse 20, he talks about basically how it's never going to be inhabited. And so he's talking about a city that at the time that he writes this is one of the biggest cities around. It's lush, it's beautiful, it has everything you possibly want. You know, the ancient city of Babylon, once it was conquered, says it will never be inhabited again. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, he didn't he didn't devastate the city. The walls were basically left standing and until 518 BC. The general desolation didn't come until the third century when basically Babylon started falling into ruin and, and in the decay, the city just started to, to, to fall apart. So it wasn't like when they, they invaded, it happened overnight. God just said it would, and it took time, but it did happen exactly how God said it was. A lot of people looked and say, well, here you see how Isaiah or, or, or the Bible's not true because when the when 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 Sirius 
uh, invaded. He didn't destroy Babylon, but Babylon did fall, and it's a complete ruin now. You know, it's the so it's true as the ultimate fulfillment. You know, you, you think about how it took a little while. L- listen, to this uh, it said uh, Babylon became completely depopulated by the time the Muslims conquest of the seventh century, and, and it, to this day, it still lies deserted. Oh, they built palaces like. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein built a, a palace overlooking it, but it's still just nothing but ruins there. So it, we see that it's it's true to this day. So you know the ultimate fulfillment though of this verse uh, is when Jesus returns in His glory and and conquers the world system, because not only is Babylon a physical place, but it's a picture place too to remind us of the, how the world is. You know, when he will rule the earth for a thousand years, as he does, is there'll be no more world system in opposition to him. So we'll see the ultimate fulfillment that Babylon will be laid to waste because that kind of system will never rise again and it will never be inhabited again. You know, in the mid-seventh century, Mesopotamia was invaded and settled excuse me, by the expanding Muslim empire when a period of Islamism I don't know if that's a good word or not. Follow where Islam just kind of spread. Babylon was dissolved as a providence in Aramaic and the Eastern, the church of the Eastern Christianity became marginalized as a church that had been there. Uh, there were very small villages at that time that were called Babel. But when people would go hunting for Babylon, all they would find was just a small set of ruins. Uh, Babylon's mentioned again we're talking about how desolate it's been in uh, medieval Arabic writings as a source of bricks. So basically, when they were building Baghdad and, and Basra, they would go to Babylon and, and dig up these bricks and use So not only did, did the Medes destroy it, but the own people who lived there started to destroy the city piece by piece. You know, and later in time, it said that European travelers tried to find it, and they they couldn't discover the city's uh, location, or they they mistook Fuja for it uh, in different places. Uh, there was a guy named Benjamin of Tildea in the 12th century. He mentions Babylon, but it's not clear if he went there or he just heard about it. Uh, others tried to refer to Baghdad as Babylon or the New Babylon, but it's not there. Uh, so we see that it definitely was completely destroyed. Now we get to verse 21 and 22. He gives us a little more picture of, of how bad the desolation became. The, the animals mentioned here are, are almost impossible to identify precisely. You know, the picture is of a dark, confused area around Babylon. Because when it talks about here, you, you see a, it says doleful creatures. The word doleful creatures is och, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right. And many people believe that might be a hyena because that word is a howling creature. So he talks about maybe hyenas are there. you know. And then you go and he, he talks the word owls. You say, well, we know what owls are. But the word there is, is bath. Uh, and it means unclean bird. It's used for two different birds. It's used for owls. It's also used for ostriches. So uh, it's literally translated when you when you say here where it says an owls. Uh, it's really two words, and, and it 
basically literally translates daughters of owls. So daughters of unclean birds were living there. Uh, so, but then we go a little further and it talks about setars. Uh, that's a, a, a wild goat or uh, a, basically a, it's referred to as a hairy goat. Uh, sometimes it's also associated with demons in the Bible. The same word here, Leviticus 17, verse 7, and 2 Chronicles eleven fifteen, use that same word uh, to demonstrate or to talk about a demon, a goat-shaped demon, basically. Now, it talks about wild beast in this in verse 22 of the islands. And that word is a very small word. It's Ia, and it means howling beast. So a lot of people translate that as jackal. Now, the funny one here is the, the one that a lot of people, it's really awesome if you think about it. It says, and dragons. Now, the word dragons here is tania, tanian. Uh, and basically what it, it, it's talking about uh the, the word translates dragon or, more modernly, dinosaur. So here is you a mention of dinosaurs in the book of Isaiah, but it calls them dragons. You know, dinosaur is a modern term, and we know that for a fact that, that many of the ancient texts and things referred to dragons. Uh, I can get into this. We could talk about St. George and the dragon and basically the pictures that was drawn of him as him killing a, a triceratops. Uh, so here you have drag, you have dinosaurs mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, so we have these animals here, and he tells us these were going to be the inhabitants, creatures that you wouldn't normally have in the city, inhabiting the city of Babylon once it's destroyed. So now we get to chapter 14 of Isaiah and, and here's is, is a pretty good chapter we're going to go just a little while into it not real far into it probably if I let me find my notes which I just dropped somewhere in this horrid mess I call a desk but here we go chapter 14 it talks about and it, it's going to start on the judgment of Babylon and, and it's funny the judgment of Babylon actually means mercy for Israel. Listen to how it starts. It says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And verse 2 says, And the people shall take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land and the Lord for the servants and the handmaids and they shall Take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. So here we see kind of a a, a good um, promise to Israel after being talked about falling, after talking about how Babylon's going to capture them. You see Babylon destroyed, and now you see a prophecy to to boost up Israel. Chapter thirteen ended with desolation and gloom that the would come to Babylon, and since Babylon's really been one of Judah's greatest enemies, the judgment on Babylon was basically an expression of mercy for Israel. So Isaiah follows the pronunciation or pronouncement of judgment on Babylon, where the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. And sometimes, think about this, this this verse kind of reminds us that sometimes we feel that that God chose us, but if he has to choose us again, he, 
he'd probably change his choice. You know, as I've, I've looked back on my life, I'm like, God, you, 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 you saved me. But sometimes I wonder if you look at me and say, really? Why did I ever do this? See, you ate the greatest thing in the world. You make a lot of mistakes. But, you know, here God reminds his children that he still chooses them. They might have messed up. They, they got into idolatry. They did a lot of things against them, but he still loved them. They were still his chosen people. They're still his chosen people. You today, you might make mistakes, and God still loves you no matter how bad it is, how horrible you think you are. Some people say, well, preacher, you don't know the things I've done. I don't, but God does. Jesus died on the cross for those bad things. If He, he says, just bring them to him. He still loves you. There, there's nothing you can do that God still wouldn't love you because of it. You think, I, I believe sometimes even, you know, the biggest thing we do is we reject him. But God's still there waiting to see if you'll turn around and come back. Now, the promise of restoration of their land here, he tells them, is also important. It says that they're going to settle on their own land. When the Babylonians came and, and, and took them into captivity, they were forcibly exiled away from their land. And so this promise of return is precious to them. You know, when somebody takes something from you, if it's promised to be brought back, you cling to that promise. And it was something that they held on to. Spurgeon said this. He said, The promise had a measure of fulfillment when Israel was brought back from Babylon. And it's still true to that. When God's people come to their worst, there's always something better for them. On the other hand, it is an equally sure thing that when sinners come to their best, there's always something terrible awaiting them. You think about it, that is so true. And, and so he, he goes on a little bit, and he, he, the invitation to the Gentiles was precious here too because, listen, we're included in this. He says, Israel, I'm going to bring you back. But then look at that verse 1, and the strangers shall be joined with them. The the strangers, that, that that's a, a really cool word. Let me let me pull this up, so let me show you, tell, share this with you right quick. It is the the word is gar, gar, uh, g a r e, and it means a sojourner, a temporary inhabitant, a newcomer. So foreigners in Israel were considered to be this. That's us. We're 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 not of this world. We're just making our way through it, and we will be joined with them. It's a promise to us. You know, when Israel's restored. They're going to invite the Gentiles. Do you think how awesome that is? During the millennial reign, when God comes back and he reestablishes his kingdom and, the, and and so much of it is for Israel, but we get to be part of that because he died for you. He died for me too. What an awesome thing that is. You know, He goes into it a little bit further and, and he talks about they'll, they'll take them captive whose captives they were and rule over the oppressor. It, it's a... And inviting strangers to come, you know, the the basically the Book of Revelation promised those who overcome will rule with Him. So here's a, a an earlier promise of it that we will rule and reign with Christ. Now in verses three through eight, you, we we we're going to uh, see something a little different: the joy of the earth of the fall of the King of Babylon. 
So let, let's, let's, let's read this. Now, we've talked about Babylon falling apart. We've seen how God's going to bring his people back. Now it's going to talk about, we're going back to the king of Babylon some. It says, It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and thy fear from thy hard bondage wherein thou wert made to serve. That thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against thee. So here we, we see it, uh, a rejoicing that the king, who would be Nebuchadnezzar at this time, is going to fall. He said, you know, in the day the Lord will give you rest from your sorrows. You know, the Lord announced that day he will give rest to a believing Israel. They shall have a rest from sorrows and fear and from their hard bondage. They've yet to have that because they've yet to accept Christ as king. You know, they, they got to come back to their land, but never were they completely at rest. Here, even during Jesus' time, they were being ruled over by the Romans. So they've never had it, even today, as they're a nation again. As we see God do, still doing wonderful things with them, they're still not at rest. There's people constantly attacking them. You know, uh, the, the Palestinians are constantly sending rockets into Israel. You know, people, we see the, the news. The news is so biased against Israel, it's not even funny. You don't hear of the rocket attacks daily that are going against the, the Israelites. Uh, you know, the Israelis, how, how daily the kids over there are having to hide in bunkers because every day they shoot a rocket. You, and the, the military is kind of almost powerless to do anything because these people hide amongst civilians as they do it. So they're they're not at rest yet, but that day's coming. You know, it's like with us. You know, do we have rest from our sorrow? Do we have rest from our fear? Do we have rest from the bondage that we're in? I do through Jesus Christ. But sometimes it's like there are times that when my sorrow just overwhelms me or the the, the fear I have overwhelms me of the things and and, and we're all bondage to something. Right now, our nation is bondage to a fear of a, 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 a sickness that is just so strong. And, you know, we know the outcome, but that doesn't make it easier. I think about the people in church and how, you know, I don't want none of them to get sick because this is not just an easy sickness. It's a hard one that's really rough and can kill. So I, I fear for everybody I know. And it's not that I don't think, well, when they die, they're going to have it. I don't want them to suffer. And that's one thing we have to think about. So he tells them this, and then and let's get into the next verse. He, he tells them, he says, you know, not to fear. He says, he says, thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. The word proverb here is mashal, and it's a, a, a proverb. It's a, a, a saying uh, ethical wisdom, I guess, is a good way to put it. So it, it's wisdom, these pieces. So take up these words and get wisdom against the king of Babylon. You know, in the day of restoration, the defeat and weakness of Babylon's king will be exposed and Israel's going to rejoice. And, and you think, well, 
So did they rejoice when Nebuchadnezzar fell? They might have. But that rejoicing is actually going to come when Satan is defeated. You know, this prophecy continues from Isaiah 13. It's important to remember that Isaiah's prophecies during this time have two aspects. There's the fulfillment, the immediate fulfillment, and then there's the fulfillment that's to come. So you have that distant and you have that near fulfillment of these. And that's what we see. First, we see there was an immediate and partial fulfillment regarding the the empire of Babylon and its king. Second, there's a distant and ultimate fulfillment of the spiritual uh, empire of Babylon, which is the world system, which king is still Satan. So we see that part of this has come to pass. Part of it will come to pass later. So that's why it's important to read Isaiah's word. Understand that not all of this has come to pass yet. Understand that some of it is a spiritual aspect that God's trying to show us. It's a promise he's told us. He's told us in the end that, hey, God wins, Satan loses. We know that. And here it is throughout the word showing this. You know, some strongly disagree when they read this and they think that this passage only referring to the king of Babylon as you get a little far into it and, and then there's no reference to Satan at all. But it's funny how it actually was read. You know, this comes from which some the uh, exposition of this passage, which some have given and referred to as Satan, arise from ignorance and not just understanding. They're wanting to, they well, part of it's happened. Well, yeah, again, you have to look at it two different ways. So, you know, when this passage of scripture is taken random and no attention is paid to the context, we we need to wonder that mistakes of this kind happen. You got to take the context of what God's trying to tell people here. You know, Calvin said this, and and he, he said, but the truth is the text speaks nothing of all the concurring Satan, nor his fall, nor the occasion of that fall, which many divines with great confidence deduce from this text. And you'll see what I'm talking about. He didn't believe this talked about Satan. He believed it was nothing but about Nebuchadnezzar. But I mean, just the words that it's written in there, you can definitely see. You know, this chapter... You know, he he didn't think it spoke of ambition of Satan, but the pride and the arrogance and fall of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a very proudful man, but I believe that Satan kind of had a big hand in that. You know, Clark said, you know, he said he disagreed with it, knowing well the prophecy was both a near and far in fulfillment. So that's the way I look at it. It, it was a near and far. Yeah, the, the, they, they were excited about it then, and I can understand why when one of your enemies fall, but we see that there's still much more to do. So, you know, why does God tell his people here about this? You know, either in the immediate or the ultimate sense the, uh, about Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar following, why does he tell them about it when it hadn't happened yet? Because he was trying to let them see part of the future. So let me go on a little bit further in my notes a little bit here. Now, he talks about how the oppressor basically stops here you know how the one that that's he had broken the staff the wicked and things and how he he calls him he said how the oppressor ceased in verse four uh, god wanted us to know that the king of spiritual babylon one day satan his days are numbered just like nebuchadnezzar's days were numbered you know the oppression will cease the oppression we're under from sin will cease sometimes we get weary and we forget we get discouraged from satan's attack but we got to remember they will not last forever. You know, sometimes it seems like he wins, 
but he, he doesn't. They will cease. Maybe not in your lifetime today, here on the earth, but one day we will stand victorious with Jesus. He, he, you know, he talked about, he says in verse 6, he who smote the people in wrath and continually to, to, to stroke, with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger. You know, both literal king of Babylon and the spiritual king of Babylon were mighty. And Satan still is mighty. Uh, he rules over people oppressively, so did Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar used oppression for his kingdom, so does Satan. That's how he rules. You know, and he said that, that this is going to stop. It's going to quit. You know, uh, talking about Nebuchadnezzar's fall, Wolf said the whole Near East, Near East rejoiced over Babylon's fall because of how harsh and oppressive it was. And you, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we see Jesus victorious? <coughs> we see him come back. Here in verse 8, it says, even the trees rejoiced over the fall of the king of Babylon. <laughs> this is kind of true of both the literal king of Babylon and the spiritual king. Uh, when they used the trees in, in Israel for fuel, they cut down thousands of trees, uh, leaving Israel and Lebanon, which was known for its trees, deforested. Wolf said this, it says, Since the 12th century B.C., the kings of Mesopotamia had imported lumber from Lebanon. Nebuchadnezzar used large supplies of such choice timbers in his extensive building efforts in Babylon after 605 B.C. So the trees had a right to rejoice, but so does the people. And can you imagine uh, Romans 8.28 basically tells us that creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So creation is looking forward to the, the day that Satan falls. I'm going to stop here, and, and next week we'll we'll get into hell. Hell receives the fallen king of Babylon, and we're going to get more into Satan. I don't want to get into this and have to come to a stop. And and this you know these thirty minutes here we've got to spend together tonight. And I thank you for for tuning in. I pray you you have a blessed week. We'll start up with verse nine through through the hopefully the rest of the chapter we're going to talk about next week satan's arrogance and his pride and the, one of the things that caused him to fall uh, you know the bible's an awesome thing we see it we get a good glimpse of of satan here as isaiah tells us and, and his his pride that he had you know it you would think that this would be back in genesis or sometimes so we could see how satan became who he was but you have to get into God's word to truly understand the enemy. And so here we're going to more understand him. Uh, his name is mentioned here, O Lucifer, the son of the morning in verse 12, and how he wanted to exalt himself above God. So we'll get into that next week because I really want to spend a little more time in that than I have tonight. I pray you have a blessed day. I pray you have a blessed week. 
I was so hoping that this virus thing would be over so that Easter we would be able to spend time worshiping together, but it's not looking like that. So we just continue to pray. and Let's ask for God to take care of this. Uh, spend some time in his word. Read his word. Meditate on it. And I pray that God blesses you for just what the word can do in your life. As my brother says, Brother Donnie Thomason says so much, the word still works, and it does. Let's pray and have a blessed night. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and what we can learn by it. Father, again, I lift the church up to you. I pray you bless everybody in a mighty and wonderful way. Father, forgive us for failing you. Lord, I know that, Lord, so many times Lord, we get so caught up in the things around us. And so, Lord, I pray for strength. I pray for guidance for our nation and the people, the leaders of it. Lord, I pray for the doctors. Lord, I pray that I know that out there there's a cure for this. And Father, I pray they find it soon. Lord, that the, the, the like, there, there won't be a, a lot, big loss of life. So, Lord, I pray that you, you just, just do a miracle. Heavenly Father, Lord, I've seen so many things. And it's like people have been drawn closer together. But, Father, I, I pray that, that this doesn't become something that pulls people away from you. Lord, don't let fear grips the church. Don't let fear destroy lives. Lord, put a hedge of protection around everybody and keep us safe. Again, I praise you. I thank you for the fact that you've blessed us in such a wonderful way. And, Lord, maybe this is just a wake-up call to that we might see that we need you more than we ever have in our whole entire life. Lord, I, I pray for a blessing. I pray for a miracle. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you.